You're listening to audio from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. If you'd like to learn more about Parkview, find more resources, or give to our ministry, please visit parkviewchurch.org. Good morning. Hi, I'm Thomas. I'm one of your pastors here. And in a moment, I'm going to preach for you. But before then, uh, we're doing something a little bit different. So today, I am excited in a moment to share with you just some of our hopes and dreams for the coming year, where we sense that the Lord is leading us so that we can accomplish our mission, our vision to be a, a whole church forming whole disciples for the good of all people. Uh, and, and what we sense is the need for what we're calling the household initiative. Mark kind of referred to it. The sermon today is going to be all about that. Uh, and as you can probably tell from that name, our hope is that even though Parkview is a large church, we're in a large room, that our church would feel like home, a place where people know your name and what's really going on in your life. And so one way we're hoping to do that is by just doing a better job of praying for you and connecting with you. And so we're starting something new to accomplish just that. And so each uh, week our plan is that we're going to give you some time to fill out a little card that can tell us what's going on in your life. And so uh, the way that you can access that is by pointing your phone at the screen right there um, or at the seat back little code behind your, the seat in front of you. Uh, get that loaded up and click, you know, I want to connect. If you're not able to use the QR code, uh, we do have some physical copies of that, and Jennifer is helping pass those out. You can raise your hand, and she'll provide one. But the idea here is it's not a big, long survey or anything like that, but just with the hope that we would know what's going on in your life and, and pray for you. So each week, our staff and elders are going to be praying for those requests and make sure we're communicating with you and praying for you. Uh, our our great fear is that something big would be happening in your life or, or something that you really are concerned about and we would only find out when something has gone wrong or something like that. We want to know what's going on. We want to pray for you and see if we can meet your needs. So I hope whether it's your first week or your 500th week here uh, that you get connected and feel more connected to the household of God here at Parkviews. Um, but like I mentioned, our household initiative really encapsulates what our emphasis is for this year. You're going to hear about it. You'll see events that relate to it just about every week. You're going to think it's just unmissable. Uh, and the reason for that is we believe that to achieve our vision as a church, uh, to make whole disciples and to grow, we actually need to feel smaller uh, as a church. And so here's what, if there's, if there's nothing else you learn from, from this time today, I hope it's this. Together, let's make this house feel like home. Together, let's make this house feel like home. Uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to open a, a few different passages. We'll be in Matthew 10, Ephesians 2, but mostly in 1 Timothy 3. So if you like to open your Bible, that's where we'll be. And what we're going to see is we're going to see the household's definition, what the Bible says about the household of God, uh, what it is. Then we'll see the household's purpose, what it's for, what it's supposed to do. And then finally, we're going to see the household's power. And that's where we're going to just get super practical. And no one will leave here wondering, what am I supposed to do with this that I've learned? So uh, having said that, let's do something immense practical, which is to pray. Would you join me? Lord, help us as we open your word to hear your voice. Would you just clear away the clutter in our busy and tired minds? Uh, there's so much going on to distract us. Please clear that away and give us ears that hear you, hearts that long to follow you, and hands ready to serve your cause, to love Jesus, to live for Jesus and to learn Jesus. And so help me, Lord, to say what you want to say to your people today. Amen. 
Amen. All right, so first, the household's definition. What are we talking about when we talk about the household of God? Well, it's always helpful to learn what Jesus said about it. So in Matthew 10, Jesus says this to his followers. He says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. Tune in for this. If they have called the master of the house, Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Now, Jesus said these words as he was sending out his 12 closest followers into the countryside of Israel to proclaim the good news about the kingdom of God and to, uh, to God's people. And it was a charged moment, you can imagine. He's sending them out. He's not going with them. And these are sort of his parting words. And uh, it's clear that Jesus wants to set their expectations appropriately for what's going to happen. After all, he says, if the master of the house, which he's saying, he himself is the master of the house. They're calling him Beelzebul, which is another word for Satan. Then how do you expect that the members of his own household will be treated? Likely worse than that. So he uses this familiar image of a household. And when we think of a household today, uh, especially with tax season pending, sorry to remind you, uh, what, do, what do we think of as a household? It's sort of the, the wage earner, the wage earner's partner and their children. And that's it. It was not that way in the ancient world. In the ancient world, the household was defined by sort of the master of the house and every single person that was related within that household structure. So it was not just sort of your genetic family. It was people, everyone who was under the care of the master of the house, who was ultimately not only sort of did they answer to the master of the house, but the master of the house was responsible for the people in the household. Um, if there were people in that household that were not cared for, uh, that were sick and were not being taken care of, that didn't have enough food to eat, that were being you know, abused in some way, whatever, it was the responsibility for, uh, for the master of the house could be hold, held accountable for what was happening. And so do you see what Jesus was communicating to them as he sent them out into this sort of dark and dangerous reality? He was saying, I'm making your personal well-being my personal responsibility. If something goes wrong with you, I am going to make it my problem to figure it out, to solve it. And so he's giving them this deep reassurance that they're part of God's own household, part of his own family, his personal responsibility to make their problems his problem. That should be deeply reassuring for us today as well. That's no less true for us today than it was for them then. But we may wonder, how, how can God do that? Is this just sort of a nice greeting card, hallmark, spiritual platitude, or like your boss says to you, you know, we're, we're all family here, we're like one big family. Are we? You know, you sort of think, no, it's, that's not true. In fact, the Bible tells us how it is that God can bring us into his own household and under that kind of ultimate care. In Ephesians 2, we read this. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members, hear this, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Did you catch that? <laughs> We who once were strangers to God, rebels from his cause, not part of his household at all, aliens to his household, have been brought in, adopted in, brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
Look at that last verse. This is astounding. None of us would believe this if it weren't in the Bible for us to convince us. Uh, You, plural you all, are being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We, can you believe this? We, simple people, gathered here on a Sunday morning, are the very dwelling place of God his own household, more more glorious than Solomon's temple in all of its glory, a new reality, a walking, talking, hugging, praying, singing, uh, learning together, marvel of divine splendor. Did you think we were just here to sort of sing some songs and get, you know, a moral lesson and leave here feeling 10% better about ourselves? Wrong. This is God's own household gathered by His grace to proclaim His praises and accomplish His purposes. The Lord of heaven is so invested and concerned for what is happening in these 70 minutes together. If that can't get you out of bed on Sunday morning, I just don't know what will. The Lord Himself has gathered us. And in a moment, I want to make a bunch of very specific points of application. But for now, can I just suggest that every one of us should just raise our expectations for what happens here on Sunday morning. Uh, The reality is that that none of us is overestimating what God could do here and what God is doing in our midst and in this moment. None of us is overestimating it. So let's raise our expectations. Um, And and here's, if you're wondering, where's all this coming from? We're really talking a lot about the Sunday morning ministry of the church. What are we doing, this family gathering we have here? Uh, Here's where this is coming from. Uh, My sense is that for for many years, we've really emphasized that the ministry of the church, the disciple-making, the sharing the word with people, encouraging each other, prayer, whatever, that it happens outside of the church, outside of the four walls on a Sunday morning and and, and so forth. And that's right. That's true. Um, I'll tell you, if all the disciple-making that happens at Parkview only happened on Sunday morning, We'd be toast. We'd be just so toast because we would not really be getting into each other's lives or those of our neighbors. But at the same time, I'm concerned that that correct emphasis on sort of Monday through Saturday sort of ministry has led to sort of a demotion of Sunday morning ministry, of what we do together, of our family gathering, of the household of faith. Sunday mornings, of course, like I said, not the only place, but they, Sunday morning is. It's the flagship of all that we're doing. It's where we set the pace. It's, it's also our training ground. It's where, we, uh, where, we, where the young in faith can sort of test their wings and test their muscles and, and, and practice and, and get trained along with brothers and sisters, uh, where everything's a little bit less scary and a little bit less challenging. It's also where we invite people to come and experience uh, the gospel, not just in the words that we say, as, as important as that is, here I am doing that, but also by experiencing the kind of community that the gospel creates, the good news of Jesus and God's glad welcome of us in Christ, not on our basis, but on the basis of his finished work on the cross. That creates a special, unique kind of community. It must. And that's one of those important things that we do on Sunday morning. So what we've seen here, just on this initial pass through the Bible, is that the house of God is God's gathered people. We've seen why it matters. But again, For us to make this house into a home, we have to get that straight. But the Bible tells us not only about sort of the definition of the household, but also the purpose of the household. And this is really important. We see it in 1 Timothy 3, among many other places. We see it in 1 Timothy 3. So here's the household's purpose. Uh, In 1 Timothy 3, we read this. 
This is the Apostle Paul writing to his church-planting protege, Pastor Timothy. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I am delayed, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. You know, notice there you have, you have two images. One that's familiar to us already. He says that this is how one ought to behave in the household of God. Now, we've learned about that here in, in these last few moments. But he gives us a second image, the image of a building. It's the pillar, the buttress of the truth. What a fun word. First time I used it this week, I'm pretty sure. Probably the last time. Um, it's sort of a hard to translate word, but it, it clearly means it's, it's part of a building that helps it, it maintain its structure and its support. It protects the building's purpose. And so what Paul is saying is that the church does for the truth of the gospel what a pillar does, what a buttress does for a building. And, and what is that? Well, it helps hold it up. It protects it. It makes sure its purpose is accomplished. Uh, the purpose of a building is so that human beings can have safety and be sheltered. We're not cold in here. We're not, um, there's not a bunch of wind blowing through here. We're not being snowed on. And in the same way, the church exists to protect and uh, defend the gospel and make sure it's fulfilling its purpose. And you might think, that's right, yeah. And, and by the way, we're here, and I hope if you're here for any time, amount of time around Parkview, you'll hear that we're just unashamedly, just we're gonna teach the truth of the gospel from the Bible. Absolutely, say true words about who God is. And you might think that that's all that Paul is talking about. Yeah, that's right, say true things about God. But take a look back at verse 15 again. He says, I'm writing these things so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Everything we sort of think would, would teach us to, to think that it doesn't say, you know, how one ought to behave, but maybe how one ought to teach or how one ought to believe in the household of God. That's how we defend the gospel. That's how we protect it. And that's absolutely true. Absolutely true. And yet what, when we zoom out on the whole book of 1 Timothy and really on the whole New Testament, what you learn is that protecting and promoting the gospel of Jesus is not just about saying true words about God, about getting our gospel doctrine right, that's true, but that protecting and promoting the gospel, being a pillar and buttress of the truth, has just as much to do with making sure that the way that we behave in the church lines up with the truth of the gospel. There are two parts, two parts. Gospel doctrine, gospel doctrine and gospel culture, saying true things about God and living as a community in a way that expresses that truth about God are both part and parcel. You can't have one without the other. If you only do one, you're really doing neither of what it means for us to express the truth of the gospel together. Now, that might seem obvious, but let me, let me sort of sharpen this point because this is, this is really where we need to go. What Paul is saying is that when a church's social culture, its social environment, its, its feel, its vibe, when it, when it is not shaped by the gospel, that that church is actually sort of functionally denying the gospel. Not with our words, but with our actions. Uh, Parkview and every church, every church that's trying to be faithful to the Bible is in danger every week of unsaying with our actions the beautiful words that we say. What does it look like when this goes wrong? Like me, you might immediately think of a church that's sort of just tolerating flagrant immorality, terrible sins, you know, public, visible things. Um, that's what it looks like to get our behavior wrong. Um, and that certainly would be a violation. 
Um, but the most notable incidents in the early church where this was, was wrong and where the, where the church rallied to rebuke it were not incidents of flagrant immorality. They were incidents where the church neglected to show hospitality to one another. In fact, as you read the book of 1 Timothy, you'd be astounded to learn that uh, the book of 1 Timothy, which is really well known for being a book of church order and proper doctrine and teaching and all those things, there's no, church, there's no book in the Bible that talks more about hospitality than 1 Timothy. This is crucial to what we actually do as a church and the way we express what we believe. See, that, what happened in, for instance, in Corinth was a breakdown of this reality. Now, Mark led us through the time of communion and read that passage. It's probably familiar to so many of you. When the Apostle Paul, he's writing to uh, the church in Corinth, he says, you know, for I delivered to you what I first received from the Lord. You know, they broke bread and gave it to one another and they would take it and take it. And do you, but do you know why Paul had to write that? He had to write that because communion in the church of Corinth was just a total mess. It was a total mess. And if you zoom out a little, just to read that chapter, I suggest you do it because you'll see what I'm talking about. What you see is that, well, communion was, was much more of a family meal in those days where the church got together. It was almost a whole day affair where they'd get together, eat and drink and, and worship together. But what was happening in Corinth was that the wealthy members of the church who didn't have to work on Sundays, at least, they were going ahead and eating and drinking. Uh, eat and drink, and they didn't care that the poorer members of the church who, who couldn't come until they were done with work for the day, some of them were slaves, of course, and they just said, you know what, they'll get here eventually. I'm hungry. Let's just go ahead without them. I'm sure there will be something left at the end. Which led Paul to say, what? What are you doing? Uh, one goes hungry, another gets drunk. What are you doing? Now, Notice what he said. He delivers one of the strongest rebukes that we really see in the New Testament. He says, and this is, by the way, the verse after the verse that Mark finished with. He finished with verse 26. Verse 27 says this, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of Christ. Wow. So this is not, that should communicate to us, this is not sort of an optional, nice bonus add-on to sort of what it means to be a church, but it's right at the heart of it. Notice Paul didn't say, hey, you're getting your theology wrong. Your theology of communion is incorrect. Here's how to do it. He doesn't say, uh, you're gluttons and drunks. You've broken the law of God, which was true, you know, from what we can see. He says, your lack of hospitality demonstrates that you are not living in line with the gracious welcome that God has shown us in Christ. Practically, Paul is saying, here's what Paul's saying. Well, put it as simple as possible. Paul's saying, don't, don't tell me what you believe about the gospel. Don't tell me what you believe about the Bible. I can, I can go online and read your statement of faith. Okay, that's a little anachronistic. Okay, I can go read that for myself. I'm just going to show up at church on Sunday morning. I'm just going to show up at church and I'm just going to watch. And then I will tell you what you really believe about the gospel. Ouch. For us to be faithful to our calling to be a whole church that's forming whole disciples for the good of all people, we must unite our glorious gospel doctrine, yes, with beautiful gospel culture, a culture of glad welcome, a culture of warmth and grace, and in particular, we must recover the art of Christian hospitality. 
welcoming one another as Christ has welcomed us. Now, I've, I've spent a lot of time here talking about sort of the danger of what happens when we get this wrong, um, when, our, when our church culture doesn't match the beauty of our gospel doctrine, but the opposite is equally true. That's the good news here. When we get this right, the results are staggering. We live in a time and place where people are in desperate need of the gracious welcome of Jesus Christ for sinners like us. Do you know, in, in, a midst, in the midst of a world full of sadness and grief and loss and pain, you and I have the opportunity to create a culture of honesty and comfort because we have a source of meaning that our circumstances can't destroy. And we get to just invite people into that. In a stifling world full of blaming and shaming and canceling and gotcha, we get to invite others, anyone who wants to come, into a non-accusing uh, world infused with the fresh oxygen of grace where we can finally let our guard down and relax because we're all not okay, but Jesus is enough. Instead of the suffocating, pervasive culture of shame that we're walking around in 196 hours of the week. In a world that tells you to earn your place, to show us your resume before we really let you into our circles, to keep up appearances, to pose your way to the top, to never admit fault, to really uh, blame it all on someone else, we get to practice the truest form of counterculture that there really is. A culture where your acceptance isn't based off of your performance, but based off of Christ's. Where you don't walk in this room feeling like you've been judged based off of the last week you had, but off of the last week that Jesus had. That, that is what's happening every week at Parkview Church. That is what we get to grow in. That's what we get to build together. It's something all of us play a role in. Every member, every member of this church has an opportunity to put on a weekly human exhibition. From start to finish, for a limited time only, we don't know how long we're going to be here before the Lord returns, that anyone can walk through those doors and they can experience what life would look like, what it would sound like, what it would feel like, if Jesus really did rise from the dead. And he did. <laughs> Where we might be functionally, we're saying to a watching world, you might not yet agree with what we believe, but whatever you believe, no one can deny the beauty of human relationships and otherworldly reality that the Lord is creating, building a dwelling place for God by his spirit, the household, the household of God. Who doesn't want in on that. Who doesn't need that? And that's why this year we're launching this initiative, this household initiative, to turn this house into a home together. And uh, if you're here at Central, I mean, if you've been here probably for, for any amount of time, you, you know this project has been brewing, okay? It's been building and brewing, literally building. Uh, you'll probably remember this summer we made some changes to our lobby to make our physical space sort of match this reality. Uh, it felt to us like when you walk out those doors, it almost feels like you're encouraged to move along. Uh, it's sort of narrow. It's, it, there's nowhere to sit, that kind of thing. And so we want to make it feel more like the living room of your church or of your house. 
um, that we're hosting people here. Uh, and uh, today you might have noticed as you looked off to your right as you came in, the place that we have called the cave. We're going to have to think of a new name for um, because it's going to have some light in there, a window, and it's going to be a place for us to sit together. It's going to have our our coffee there and a place for us to join and gather and have Bible studies, but especially on Sunday mornings to sit and enjoy each other and linger together. And as we renovate those bathrooms as well, we want to host people in in a, a home that we're proud of because it's not just a house, it's a home. And I'm, I'm so encouraged that that's, that's not affecting Parkview's budget. It's been donated and uh, just by people who have caught this vision for what it would look like for us to turn this house into a home. Now, at this point, I hope you're asking yourself, all right, how do we actually do this? How do we actually get in on this? Um, because I'm going to get incredibly practical. Buckle up. So uh, together with some of our staff, we came up with what we're, we're calling the Parkview Body Language. Parkview body language. The idea of body language is probably familiar enough. It's sort of the idea that you communicate more with your nonverbals than you do with your words. Um, people pick up more about your real message uh, through the way you act and your posture toward them than often you do with your actual words. It's a good reminder of what we've just learned from 1 Timothy 3. But it's also a great pun because, <laughs> because the Apostle Paul also calls the church the body of Christ. So it's our body language. This is how we communicate what we believe. So here, we've got three things. This is the power of the household is through our body language. So here are the three things that I commend to you as we do this and build this together. Firstly, walk in their shoes. Walk in their shoes. This is how we express the gospel with our uh, actions. You know, I'll, I'll never forget when Katie and I, uh, my wife Katie and I, packed up our boxes and made the big move out east to the big city, uh, picked up everything. We'd never moved away from Iowa City, went way out east, and big new world, big city. We moved to Chicago, and that's a joke. I know it's not that far east. It felt really far east for us, uh, far from home, uh, and we realized it's probably too close for us to commute to Parkview. We're going to need to find a place to worship. Uh, too far. So we had to do something we'd never done before, which was find a church to attend. Maybe you've had to do this before, and you, you probably have experienced some of the same things that I experienced. You had to be the new person. It's awkward. It's weird to be new. It's maybe some of you are new right now, and you feel like, yeah, I'm experiencing that currently. Um, you remember, do you remember walking through the door and feeling like everyone's looking at me, but also no one wants to talk to me at the same time? I don't know how that happens. It feels that way, though. Uh, You feel like, I don't know where I'm supposed to go, and it's weird to stand here looking around, but I feel kind of dumb just standing here. And, And it feels like just, you feel like everyone's just looking at you, feeling like you just don't know what you're doing. Um, and, and when we went there, we felt all those things all at once. And I think because, because I, we were going to Chicago so I could go to pastor school, it was kind of like, I wasn't expecting it. I wasn't expecting it. And, and that memory has, has stuck with me uh, to this day. As, as I, we stand up there in the front of the church and I see those people walk in, I go, I just want to get you. You know, I get, wrap my arms around you and just say, it's okay. It's okay. You're new. That's okay. Um, but the memory that stuck with me is just the number of churches that we went to that say, oh, beautiful gospel doctrine. They were preaching the truth about God from the Bible. And then we would walk out in the lobby and sort of do this. Can I, in your circle, are you guys, no, okay. No one talked to us. And I, there was one church in particular, wonderful sermon, just beautiful truth, okay? And then we walked around the lobby for 20 minutes and no one talked to us. We had to force ourselves into 
someone's conversation circle to get noticed. And I was tr- we were trying really hard. <laughs> uh, we were trying really hard to get connected, but it just, it just wasn't happening. Um, imagine, that was, that was me there to be connected. Imagine how it is for someone who's really just a little bit curious about Christianity and just there to explore. You lost them 15 minutes ago is the answer. So we must pursue them. You've got to walk across the room. You've got to put yourself in their shoes, consider what they're experiencing. Now, at this point, maybe you're already thinking, now you make it sound so easy. It, it takes a little bit of courage, doesn't it? Now, it's, it's a lot easier to walk across the room than it is to walk across the street to share the gospel with your neighbor. So this is a good training ground for us, but it's still hard. It's hard to walk across the room. Um, where are we going to get that courage? Where do we have that example? And does, is this just sort of we just muscle up and decide it's worth it? Well, here's what uh, our power is in our example. Romans 15, 7, it says this. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So let's run this first, this first step in our body language through that filter. Consider Jesus. Did he walk in our shoes? We spent the last month talking about the incarnation of Christ. Jesus putting on human flesh, coming to earth as a vulnerable little child. Jesus put on human flesh so that the creator of the universe could show divine hospitality to us. We didn't learn this from Hilton or from a great restaurant or from great homemakers, good housekeeping magazine. We've learned this from Jesus Christ himself who has come further than anyone to show us the welcome of God. He didn't just put on our shoes, he put on our cross. So that if we walk in one another's shoes, even if it costs us a lot, even, it'll cost us our time, it'll cost us our convenience, our headspace on Sunday mornings, it's gotta be a different experience, it will not cost you more than it cost him. And you can be sure that he'll be with us. He's so invested in this. He's so concerned for this. So, uh, walk in their shoes. Secondly, many hands make light work. This is probably a principle that's already at work in your own household, isn't it? Uh, Many hands make light work. Perhaps not long ago, you probably gathered with your family, maybe at a Christmas gathering. If it was anything like ours, there's a bunch of food, there's a big meal, big family gathering. And that meal, it's a communal meal, of course, in more ways than one. First of all, you don't show up empty-handed. You bring something. Everyone's got a role to play. You bring something to the party. Uh, this year, we made, we made one of the big dishes. It felt like a big honor, okay, to be trusted with the meat. Okay, it felt good. I showed up with something to share. But secondly, Lord help you if you let grandma clean all the dishes at the end, okay? Better not happen. Um, you cannot let that happen. And so uh, what happens, though, if everyone dives in to help make the meal and to help get their dishes clean? It takes five minutes, Right? Everyone's got a little bit of a job to, to do instead of everyone doing a bunch. Um, if we're thinking of our church household in the same way we think of, uh, of that as our family gathering on a weekly basis, the same principle applies. Here's the reality. Parkview should not be a place where 10% of the people do 90% of the work. It just shouldn't. Are you part of the 10 or part of the 90 right now? Gotta ask. Everyone has a role to play. I can tell you today, to make this service happen, I looked, I scanned through our planning center app that we use to organize our volunteers, and there were 63 people, 63 people. Some of you, I know many of you come to this service because you're helping often with Kidmen at the nine. Um, thank you, by the way, thank you. Um, it, it's everyone from Kids Ministry to the tech team, 
pointing at you. You guys love being pointed at. And, <laughs> and the musicians on stage and, and everyone else that's involved, obviously, um, we learned that many hands make light work. Um, everyone doesn't have to bear the full burden of what's going on. And so there's a role for you to play here, and I hope you'll seek out a place to, to, to do that so that we can do this together in those programmed ways that we show what the gospel really looks like and feels like. Parkview needs your gifts to turn this house into a home. Uh, let's ask that question again, though. Did, where did we learn this from? Is this just good management? Is this just a good technique? What about Jesus? Did his hands make light work? Did he sort of stand abstracted above it all, just sort of directing people and waiting for others to do the work? Not at all. In fact, to this day, Jesus' hands are still lifting burdens, burdens of sin and shame. He's borne our burden on our behalf. If there is anyone who is entitled to come to earth and be served and consume and not give, it was him. He was the king. After all, he still is. But here's, he said about himself in Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. He is the one who has ultimately made our work light because we're not earning our salvation. He has given it to us as a gift and we're responding to his grace. And finally, uh, we gotta get in their shoes. We've got to uh, get in there. Many hands make like work, but also uh, we should don't wait to get real. So don't wait to get real. That's the last one. What makes a house into a home is, is it is about being welcomed and about being served and those things, but ultimately it's about being known. If you went into a house and no one knew your name, you'd say, I don't think this is my house. <laughs> this is not my home, okay? Uh, by the same token, uh, it's, it's about willing to become vulnerable, willing to be known at a deep level by another person. And if that's going to happen, someone's got to go first, Someone's got to go first. If we're all sort of waiting around, looking at each other after church on Sunday, kind of going, when is someone going to come up and ask me a deep question about myself? <laughs> it's going to take a while. It's going to take a while. But what if you dared to go there? What if you took a bold risk? What if you mustered your courage and you decided, instead of just trading New Year's Eve stories, we do that too, that's important, small talk's important, but you decided to test the water, stick a toe in the water, and go one step deeper. It might, it might sound as simple as just saying, hey, it's so good to meet you. Is there, is there any way I could pray for you this week? Could I, could I go there? Is that okay? Do you mind if I just ask you one question? Um, one, what's one thing you learned from the passage today? What's one thing you learned from the sermon? You don't have to do that about today. Okay, I'm very self-conscious about that. Uh, <laughs> but well, what if you dared to say... Here's a real, for the really brave, okay, I won't ask you to raise your hands, but for the really brave, here's what you might do. You might be brave enough to actually share that you yourself have needs, that you yourself have vulnerabilities, that you need the body of Christ, the household of God to help you address. You might say, actually, I don't want to be weird, but would you mind praying for me? I, there's something going on that I don't want to share too much, but it has to do with X, Y, Z. Would you just pray for me real quick? Or could you pray for me this week? Here's, here's my goal. Let's make it normal to talk about Jesus at church. We can do that. Let's, if there's anywhere in the world where it should just feel like the most natural thing in the world to just, can we talk about God here? Can we pray for each other? There's, there should be nowhere else where it's more normal than here. Relationships that, that do that, where we get real, where we're honest with one another, they're risk but they're a risk worth taking. And of course, Christ is the one who has shown us that he went first he did not take, wait around for us to come to him, 
uh, and express all our vulnerabilities, he went all the way. No one went further to show us divine hospitality and love. He didn't wait for us to clean ourselves up. He didn't wait for us. He never held himself back. He never held us at arm's length. He was never afraid to ask the next good question, even if it was a little awkward. Plenty of examples, and we're going to dive back into Luke here next week, and you'll see plenty of examples of how Jesus does this. Um, the stakes were just too high for him to do otherwise. He needed to have you close to him. And that is what we believe. The gospel's power is an act of divine hospitality to us. God going all the way to bring us near at high cost. No matter what it costs us, it costs less than it cost him. And God is not just telling us in the gospel to go free because we're not full of sin anymore, but to come near, come near to him and to all of his love and his radiating power that makes us the, the kind of people that can build this countercultural gospel reality of grace in our midst. So let's walk in their shoes. Let's get in there let's, because many, many hands make light work and let's not be afraid to get real. Don't wait to get real. That's a reality worth bleeding for. That's what Jesus says. He did it. It was then. It is today. So let's do those things and we'll build uh, a house into a home together. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we, we praise you for your divine welcome of us through the perfect sacrifice of your son. Lord, we know, we confess, if we came to you today on our own resume and the strength of our abilities every one of us would be turned away from your household. Thank you, then, that through Jesus we are welcomed in a way we could never have dared hope. And now help us, Lord, to take that truth down deep into our hearts so that it works its way out, even in these next 15 minutes, to make a home of gospel welcome, where the way we welcome one another matches the welcome of heaven for sinners. To the praise of your great name, we pray. Amen.